The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Once again, I read to you from God's Word, from Matthew's Gospel now. This morning I looked at the first part of Matthew 2, of the Magi coming to meet the new Christ and going to Herod, and Herod giving him his hypocritical stance that he wanted to go and worship. Now listen as I pick up from where we were this morning. Matthew 2, beginning at 13. When the Magi had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children and refused to be comforted because they are no more. But then when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in another dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That was, where, that was spoken by the prophets, that it might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. This, too, is God's word. I've known people in my ministry I'm interacting with some today. There's probably hardly ever been a time when I wasn't interacting with somebody who had fear as a major motivation just beneath the surface of their life. It might be fear of a dread disease. It might be fear of losing a life partner to death or divorce. It might be fear of unemployment, fear of a family, rupture of some kind fear of loneliness. There are all kinds of fears that stalk people. Fear sends icy fingers into people as we all hear of random attacks and we wonder what is the news going to bring us next of some individual motivated by ISIS breaking out with a bomb on American soils or subway 
or some maniac individual driving his car into a crowd, randomly killing people he doesn't even know, or a gunman attacking a church or a school. You all know what I speak of. And it can seem many times as if irrational acts of terror are on the throne controlling our world, our news, our society. And maybe sometimes you almost want to stay home all day and just lock the door and say, terror would not be able to reach me here. Well, when we read the gospel accounts, there were many people afraid when Christ was born, afraid of all kinds of things, some the same as we're afraid of today and some very different. It's a remarkable thing if you would look through the the gospel stories and the different announcements and go in the early chapters of Luke, which we've not read, when the angel made announcement of the birth of Jesus to Mary and to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Time after time you hear the same salutation. Don't be afraid. Fear not. There were things about this time and what was going on in the world that made people quite desperately afraid. Well, you might not think a featured individual in the passage I've just read was one of those people. He was a power broker. He had a lot of power. He was a recognized king with the backing of Rome. Herod, who called himself the Great, was wealthy beyond your dreams. He built palaces all over the place. He built fortresses to flee to if his enemies ever came and overpowered him. He had a lot of, you might call them bomb shelters, final places of refuge, like the big rock of Masada down near the Dead Sea. Some of you, I'm sure, have been there, where Herod planned that he would hold off a last enemy who came after him. Herod was a man with a lot of power and a lot of cunning and a lot of brute strength. He was a cruel man, and he just mowed adversaries down. He didn't ask, should I be kind to this person or not? If somebody was in his way, that person was toast. That's all there was to it. But can you believe that anyone with as much power going for him as Herod had still made many, many, if not most of the decisions of his adult life based upon the motivation of a paranoid fear. Because we find him here in Matthew chapter 2 desperately afraid of a small baby and a prophecy about a baby that he has not even seen. Now, I won't go into a lot of background on who Herod was. He was called or considered the king of the Jews. The Romans let him have that title, let him make decisions as long as he didn't get in the way. He wasn't, in fact, a Jew himself. His parents had been converts. He was born as an Edomite, the tribe of Edom, people living to the southern part of the land of Palestine. He had a Jewish wife. He couldn't keep wives very well. He had about 15, we think, by best count. He killed several of them when he thought they might be rivals. He killed at least two sons by strangling them. He, there was a saying about Herod which was humorous but very ironic He followed many of the practices of the Old Testament, being king of the Jews. He thought he'd better sort of go along and and be respected by the Jewish people. So he didn't eat pork just to conform to that Old Testament law. And 
It is known that Caesar once said, knowing that Herod had killed sons of his, it is safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. That's the kind of man we're dealing with. Well, why was this big king trembling before an infant king? We think he was about 68 years old at this time. He'd been ruling for more than 30 years. He was in failing health. His own death was about a year away. And along came these magi that I spoke about this morning, seeking what they called the newborn king of the Jews. I didn't go back and read verse 3, but if you have a Bible, you could cast your eye there and see that when he heard this, it says Herod the king in verse 3, was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Troubled to the extreme. The word in the Greek actually means frightened or intimidated. And you think, why was a powerful king who could give an order and make almost anything happen, a a king who had refuge fortresses, who had troops at his command, all the money he ever needed, why was he afraid of a child? But it's interesting, the question that he asked in 2.4 of Matthew, he right away equated something. Little negligent as he was, I'm sure, of Bible study, he asked the question, where was the Christ to be born? The Magi didn't call Jesus Christ. They called him the newborn king, but Herod immediately made an equation. I remember that there are ancient prophecies which said, There would be one called the Christ, the anointed of God, who would come and rule in great might over many, many people. What Herod reveals to us here is that there was one person that he feared desperately, a person he couldn't con or bribe or manipulate or defeat in a fight, and that person was the living God. Herod was afraid of God. And as a result, you see the terrible thing that happened. It is only way he thought of getting rid of this Christ who was born in Bethlehem. Since he'd heard the star had arisen more than a year ago, he even built in a safety margin and said, every boy two years and under dies. We don't know how many that was, of course. Dozens, maybe. Bethlehem wasn't that large a place, but it says even the territory around there was included in this massacre. I don't want to induce anybody to some kind of false fear, but just think if while we were having a a service on a Sunday morning, some group of Roman soldiers was to come into our building with their short swords and go into our nurseries and kill every child there. There would be shrieking and howling of mothers and fathers. Little children killed because a man actually hated his creator. Psalm chapter 2, or the second psalm, long ago predicted this, the nations will conspire and the peoples will plot in vain and the kings of earth will take their stand against the Lord and his anointed one. That's exactly what was happening in the case of Herod. Now, I realize quite fully that this is Christmas Eve and you're full of sentiment and good feeling and good cheer and you're maybe already thinking to yourself, boy, this preacher doesn't understand very well. You're supposed to talk about nice sentimental things on Christmas Eve. Well, this too is part of Scripture, folks. 
And when we come to praise Jesus Christ, come as God's anointed King and Savior, we have to understand he came in a world racked with terror and acts of terror. He himself was the object of acts of terror, and the ultimate act of terror was when they took him, stripped him, beat him, and pinned him to a cross where he died. Jesus lived his whole earthly life in the midst of terror and in the midst with people pitted against him who could bring terror against him. But it's not so much that we're supposed to say, well, isn't that awful that there were such people around? It seems that the Bible is asking us to see, strange as it may seem, that what Herod the Great typifies is something that's active in each and every one of us. That unless our hearts belong to Christ, and unless we worship him as God's true king, what was in Herod is in every man and every woman. Yes, he was an exaggerated example, but Romans 3 tells us there's not one person who is righteous, not even one. None who by themselves seek after God. We all have our stubborn ways of wanting our own will, of resisting God's will, of saying, I want my rights, I want my plans, and I will push away from Christ and anyone else who stands as a threat to my self-determination. We want a God who will be a nice benefactor to us. A nice, jovial grandfather who will give us blessings but not ask too much from us. We cannot easily accept a God who demands that he must rule and reign over all of our lives. In fact, Luke 19 has a verse where folks came to say something that people commonly are saying to themselves all the time when they want to disobey the ways of God. They say, we will not have this man, Jesus, to rule over us. I suggest to you that the terror you have to be concerned about in the world today is not so much that which comes from Islamic terrorists or some kind of right-wing people. It's not Kim Jong-un, who seems to me like a very typical representation of Herod the Great, lobbing his rockets at us. We need, first and foremost, to have a deep dread of the terror that is active in our own lives, that does not want God, that wants to bluff and bluster and manipulate and work out deals and somehow keep God from being in charge of us. Like Herod, we want to do away with God. And you know, Herod didn't even live long enough since he died when Jesus was still a toddler. He didn't live long enough to hear the adult Jesus say, What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And Herod certainly did lose his soul. It comes down to this, folks. Those who are new creations in Christ, who belong to him and call him king, can live today and tomorrow without the chief motivation of their lives being fear and dread. Charles Wesley wrote the, uh, a hymn, and he knew the scripture well when he penned the words, Jesus, the name that charms our fears and bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ear, tis life and health and peace. 
That isn't saying that the peace of Christmas is simply when all men lay down their arms and stop fighting. That day is never going to come. The Scripture says we're always going to have wars and rumors of wars until Christ comes again and his kingdom is visibly established. But he comes to give a peace that takes over inside us. And first of all, reminds us that we have eternal life. So if a Herod comes along and takes our physical life, we are not ultimately lost. Yes, we'll be mourned. Yes, our family would be sad. Yes, indeed, the ISIS folks can meet me at the Harrisburg airport and blow me up. And my body will be gone. But they don't have me. They didn't win. Christ has me. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. So Jesus was not born someplace safe in a fairy tale land, free from all dangers. He was born where terror at least appeared to rule with a capital T. And all through his life, he faced the angry, aggressive, deadly actions of men who wanted to take his life and ultimately did. But he went to that cross where the terror seemed the most fierce and the most apparently victorious, and the Scripture says that in that act, he broke the tyranny of terror over us. He became our peace, the Scripture says. By his blood shed at the cross, he made peace between us and our Father so that we belong to him. And terror, yes, is going to run rampant, and the Herods will always be around, and the Kims, Mr. Rocket Boy over there in North Korea, they're always going to be around. And they're always probably going to kill their hundreds or thousands. You know who's responsible for the destruction of more human lives than any other individual who's ever lived, as far as we know? You're going to say Hitler, and you'll be wrong. Joseph Stalin, a man who dominated his country and put millions to death of his own people. Should we be afraid of Joseph Stalin? Not ultimately. His reign of terror was only temporary. Many of our children, if we ask some of the young children here, who's Joseph Stalin? They don't even know. And yet in the lives of elder ones here, you know how he put fear in the hearts of so many people. The Scripture says the triumph of the wicked is brief. The man who drives his car into the crowd on the sidewalk, yes, indeed, his name is in the news. He's known for a little while. Yes, indeed, he may actually kill some people. We would hope, if those belong to Christ, that they have an eternal life. But that man does not rule in any permanent way. And in fact, in a few generations, he's forgotten. He's a dusty news story in the back issues somewhere that nobody could even tell you about. You see, Christians should tremble. But we tremble not with craven fear that someone's going to kill us. We tremble with wondering adoration and great hope an everlasting joy that Christ has come to change everything about us in our eternal future. Herod, the so-called great, occupied a throne for a pitiful few years, and then he was gone. And appearances seem to say that other menaces like him took over, but they really haven't taken over. They arise for a little while, and then they're gone. 
But the one who arose in the story we've explored tonight has not gone away. His rule has not stopped. His rule is absolute and sovereign from his throne in heaven. And all that he has made and all of those who belong to him are safe under his ultimate care. His eternal grip is upon them, and if we, we lose our bodily lives, we still haven't lost anything. Ultimate. We are still Christ's, and he will not let us out of his grasp. When senseless acts of terror are striking in places today, some people will cry out all the time. You'll hear it every time there's a big terrorist act. Somebody will say, where is God? God let us down here. People died. Well, we know where God is. He's right here in the midst of all our pains and everything that frightens us because he came into this world in the person of his son, and terror struck him down, and he rose again, and he ascended to live even this day. He is in the midst of us. In a world so stained with anger and violence, he is in ultimate control. Thanks be to God. We can praise him for this on this Christmas Eve. Father, may we go from here in your peace, not because the world is peaceful, not because all arms have been laid down, not because there are not crazy people stalking our streets, not because it's impossible that we would hear of a school or a church being broken into by a gunman again. Terror and war will be with us as it was with Christ. But we thank you for him who has conquered him who is the ultimate victor, whose victory one day will be seen when he returns in power and great glory. Thank you for this wonderful Savior. Amen.